Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Hebrews 13. We're going to continue from there. We've just completed Hebrews 12 last week. That's why we're now in Hebrews 13. You guys see how this goes. It's very difficult for me to plan sermons when we do this. Just where are you going next? The next verse. So we're going to look there. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6 as a unit, though we'll be taking on verses 1 through 3 this morning. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word together, we ask that your spirit would be at work illumining our minds, helping us to understand what it is that the head of the church is saying to us. Not only what was spoken to these Hebrew Christians many years ago, but what is being said to us in this word. Pray that we would receive it with joy, that we would hear these commands and desire to keep them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look at Hebrews 13, it starts with a command, let brotherly love continue. And then you actually have a series of imperatives or commands all the way through Hebrews chapter 13. Some scholars are so struck by the change in the way that Hebrews is written that they posit that maybe there's another author for chapter 13. They actually come in and say, well, Paul didn't write Hebrews 1 through 12, but maybe Paul wrote Hebrews 13. And I'm glad they've caught up, but I wish they would have caught up 12 chapters ago. (laughs) The fact is, is that we often come to a new chapter and we read it in a way that's disconnected from what's come before it. And so I want you to see these commands connected to what has come before. So, for example, look up at Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We looked at this text last week, so I won't spend much time here, but notice that we are to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And what I'm contending is that when you come into Hebrews 13, you're seeing a bit of what acceptable worship looks like. Both the offerer and the offering must be acceptable to God. God is the judge. And both the offerer and the offering must be acceptable to Him. And the only way that's true for any of us, as we've laid out through the book of Hebrews, is in Christ. It's only acceptable in Christ. Christ is the offerer. There were offerers in the old covenant, namely the priests whom God had appointed to that end, and they made an offering. But they, as offerers, in and of themselves, were never acceptable to God. They could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year and after offering a sacrifice for themselves. And God was specific that there needed to be a holy offerer. He was also quite specific, there needed to be a holy offering. They couldn't just bring any old lame animal. This animal had to be without blemish. The sacrifice had to be brought in that way. 
And Hebrews is at pains to tell you that those old covenant types and shadows, that that sacrificial system and priestly system that were given to us under the Old Testament have now been fulfilled in Christ. That Christ is the great high priest who's made the offering. And what offering has he made? Himself. As a sacrifice once for all. He offered himself through the eternal spirit once for all. So he was a holy offerer and he brought a holy offering. And now as those who are united to Christ through faith and by the spirit, we can make acceptable offerings in worship. Paul gets at this in Romans 12.1. In view of God's mercy, that therefore, after what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 through 11, in view of that, Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. So we're to offer ourselves in accord with God's commandments. We're to do that. You can see that same nature of the text if you go up to Hebrews 12 and verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And what we're finding in Hebrews 13 is our author giving us some shape, if you will, to what it looks like to offer acceptable worship. He's giving some shape to that. He's giving that with a series of imperatives, with a series of commands. And Hebrews begins those commands with the command to what? Let Brotherly love, continue the command to love. He begins there. John Owen calls that command the fountain and foundation of all mutual duties, moral and ecclesiastical, churchly. So we're going to look this morning at that command. And as we look at the command to love, I want to stress that we're being commanded here to love someone in particular, namely the brothers. Or we can translate this the brothers and the sisters. Or we can just say Christ's church. We're commanded to love Christ's church. Yes, we are to love all people, but especially we are to love Christ's church. So we're going to look at this general theme of loving Christ's church, and as we do, I want to consider it in three parts. First, I want to consider love's continuance. We're told to let brotherly love continue. Second, I want to consider in verse 2, love's generosity or hospitality. And third, in verse 3, I want to consider love's compassion. So love is to continue, verse 1. Love is to be generous, verse 2. Love is to be compassionate, verse 3. So let's look at that. Look at Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Note the command says that brotherly love is to continue. It's to keep on going. And there are at least three inferences we get from the text right off. Here's the first inference. Love for the brothers or for the church has already begun. In order for me to command you to let brotherly love to continue, it means that somewhere along the lines, brotherly love has begun, and you need to continue in it. When we're born anew by the Spirit through Christ, we're caused to love. That's part of the new covenant promise. You see that in Ezekiel 36, 25 and following. You see that in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, which is picked up by our author in Hebrews 8, that we are caused by the Spirit to love God's law. And what's the sum of God's law? To love God and to love your neighbor. The Holy Spirit will cause us to love the law of God and to keep it. Thus, when we're born anew, love for Christ and his church has been conceived in our hearts. Listen to 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God. So what is the evidence of who the children of God are? And who are the children of the devil? What's the evidence of who the children of the devil are? 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So that's one thing. You don't practice righteousness, you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. Further, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you don't love Christ's church, you're not born of God. So this love has begun in the Hebrew church, and we'll see that a bit more in a minute. Here's the second inference there under let brother love continue. This love for the brothers has been demonstrated in this church. In order for him to know that love has begun in them, he has to have seen it demonstrated in some way. Love here is not just some set of emotions. They're not just feeling particularly well toward people. They're actually acting it out in some way. There's some way in which this is being demonstrated. So look at Hebrews chapter 6. Keep your hand there and look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9. After a warning passage, here's what we read. Though we speak in this way, this way being the way of warning that had just come, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. See, they've been showing this love. They've been demonstrating it in the way they serve the saints. Sovereign Grace, your love for one another, your care for one another, your care for the pastors of this church is often remarkable to us. We hear continually of ways in which you're encouraging one another, helping one another, and even rebuking one another. We're often challenged and encouraged by how patient you all are with one another. We thank the Lord continually for his grace in you in this way. And with the author of Hebrews, we want you to remember to let this love continue. To continue in love for the brothers. Third inference that he gives there is that this love for the brothers must be continually fought for. Let brotherly love continue. It's just right there on the surface If I'm going to command you to continue in something, it means I assume that you might have some struggles in continuing in it. We're in a constant battle with the flesh. Our love can grow cold. This command assumes it is difficult to continue, that you can easily slip from loving the brothers, that love for your brothers can wax and wane, that it must be guarded, nurtured, fought for. We must continue in our love for the brothers. We must constantly abide in this love. We must take care that we preserve our love for Christ's church. Our self-love and our love of this present world are an ever-present enemy to loving Christ's church. So here's a question that comes up. How do you nurture it? If you're supposed to continue in brotherly love, how do you nurture this kind of love? I want to provide you six answers to that question. How do you continue in this kind of love? How do you nurture that? First, you meditate often upon the love of God in Christ for you. The Father loves you and gave His Son for you. So we hear, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or we hear, See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Son loves you. Think of this. It's not only the Father loves you. The Son loves you as the Father loves Him. And He loves you to the end. As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so have I loved you. That's a stunning statement. 
abide in my love. John tells us now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The love of God in Christ for us, hear this, comes before our faith in him or our good works. Comes before. But God shows his love for us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God in Christ for you is, it's an invincible love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Knowing the love of God in Christ is to be our continual meditation. It's what we pray for one another even. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you hear the reflections of Scripture on this? So you meditate upon the love of God and Christ for you continually. You pray that you might know it, that your brothers and sisters in Christ might know it. Second, you meditate upon the grace of adoption in Christ. Not just upon the love of God in Christ for you, but you meditate upon the grace of adoption in Christ that's not only yours, but that you share with the brothers and sisters in the church. You've been adopted by him. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's speaking of Christ, the sanctifier, and those who are sanctified, that's speaking of us, his people, all have one source. Uh, Better translated, I've told you guys, says in the Greek are all of one. And I think the point here in context is of one father. That is why he is not, notice this phrase, He, Jesus, the one who sanctifies, is not ashamed to call them, his church whom he sanctifies, brothers. Did you catch that? Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. He's not ashamed to call the other people in the church, the ones who maybe irritate you or you don't like. He's not ashamed to call them brothers either. So if Christ isn't ashamed to call all these folks here brothers and sisters, who are we to be? Ian Hamilton has said this to us before, and I'll come back to it. If this brother is elect of the Father blood-bought by the Son, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Who am I? 
to ever speak ill of him? Who am I to ever reject him? Third, you meditate often upon the command of Christ to love your brothers. So you meditate often upon God's love for you in Christ. You meditate often upon the adoption you have in Christ that you share with your brothers. And you meditate often upon the command of Christ to love your brothers. Now this is all over scripture. I'll just read one. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're to meditate upon the command to love one another. That means when I become irritated with people, I remind myself Jesus commands me to love them. I don't have the option to discard them. That's not one of the options that's been given to me. I'm commanded to love them. Fourth, you pray regularly for the Spirit to produce in you the love of Christ toward His church. That's already been born in you, but you want that fruit to mature. And you ask the Holy Spirit to mature it. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? When we, it's really fruit, singular, and then we have all these aspects. But what's the first word we hear? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Good job answering. It's about the most charismatic you've ever been. You're welcome to do it as often as you want. Listen to what Paul says. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves, now catch this, have been taught by God to love one another. You ask the Holy Spirit to do this because the Holy Spirit is the one who's teaching you to love one another. Fifth, you consistently spend time in interpersonal relationships. It's a long point. Here's your sum it up. Be with each other, okay? Be with one another. Consistently spend time in interpersonal relationships with the members of the body. You look for evidences of grace in them. You thank the Lord for them. How else do you fulfill some of these commands? Hebrews 3 and verse 12. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do you fulfill Hebrews 10, 24? Let us encourage or exhort one another. Not forsaking the gathering ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another. And even more as we see the day drawing near. We're constantly together encouraging one another. Coming to know one another. So that we can speak into each other's lives. I told you guys this before. When Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to rebuke the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. And help the weak. And then he says, be patient with them all. How do we know whether we need to rebuke this brother? Encourage this brother? Or pick them up and carry them over the finish line if we don't know them. The only way we know them is by being with them, caring for them. Six, last one, you mortify, put to death every impulse that assumes the worst of your brother, that places your own interests above them, to become bitter. In other words, we put to death what is earthly in us, and we love our brothers. This is now Paul says this. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger 
and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Sovereign Grace, John Owen actually makes the case that the whole church is organized around faith in Jesus Christ, our head, and love for the brothers, his body. And where those are lacking, there is no church. That's an interesting way for him to come at a topic. His point is, where there are no regenerate people, there is no church there. Now please note that love is not some kind of pious emotion. This love is being shown by keeping the law of God toward one another. Go back to Hebrews 13 and look at verse 2 and verse 3. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you're also in the body. Now we'll look at these more specifically, but we could argue that verse 2 and 3 are a keeping of the sixth commandment. Do not murder. It's a looking after the welfare of your brothers. It's caring for others. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among you all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous We can easily state that this is a keeping of the seventh commandment. Verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. A kind of expression of the keeping of the tenth commandment. Potentially as well the eighth commandment, depending on how discontented you are. In other words, in our text, this love shows in the practical matters of caring for the needs of our brothers, hospitality, and showing compassion to them visiting the believers in prison. And that's what I want to look at. Our love for the brothers must continue. And that leads to the second point about love. Our love is generous. Love's generosity. Not only must it continue, it must be generous. Look at Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This actually just says in the Greek, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers isn't there in the text it's assumed in this word that we use for hospitality it's a hospitality toward people that you do not necessarily know but in this case in the text it's a hospitality toward your brothers and sisters in christ that you may not know now what do i mean by that the hebrews lived in an era of diaspora they were being scattered they were being persecuted they were having their homes sacked and their stuff taken They were being imprisoned, and this was an opportunity to show hospitality to other believers. Believers are being called to help those in need. We're being commanded, notice what he says first, do not neglect. It's don't forget this, or positively, to remember it. Remember this. We must be constantly reminding ourselves, or we'll slip into selfish concerns. Constantly reminding ourselves, we need to be on the lookout on how to help our brothers and sisters in Christ or we will slip right back into thinking about what we need, what we desire. And when we slip into selfish concerns, our home, our car, our money, those things won't belong to the Lord anymore in our minds in such a manner that we're generous and ready to share. Rather, what will happen is we will be self-serving with all those things. We need to be ready for this. Notice what he's saying. Do not forget. Do not neglect. It's a kind of 
readiness that's assumed here, watching for opportunities to help those in need. Look at the rest of the text. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. This seems to be pointing to Abraham and Lot, both Abraham and Lot. If you remember in Genesis 18, Abraham receives three angels who come as visitors to him. And in 18.1, not to get into all of that text, but in 18.1, we are told that Abraham sat at the entrance of his tent, seemingly waiting for the opportunity to show hospitality. We see it in Genesis 19.1 with Lot. Lot sat at the entrance of the gates to Sodom, looking for the opportunity to show hospitality. Both men in their generosity were blessed by God and that they both unknowingly brought angels into their home. Now they found that out, but not initially. Abraham and Lot both entertained angels unawares at the first sight of them. They just saw people in need and they helped. They were both ready to be generous. And what's interesting is in their readiness to be generous, they were the ones who received the blessing. This is speaking to a kind of privilege of divine grace and favor. The author of Hebrews isn't saying, you should expect that angels are going to come to your house because that's just normal thing, right? I mean, it's, it's a remarkably abnormal thing, if you will. We read about it in Genesis 18 and 19. But what he's getting at is that you have a privilege of divine grace and favor when you love your brother and you're generous to them and you're hospitable. Many blessings attend such obedience. Namely, what's that blessing? Namely, when you're generous to your brothers, when you bring them into your home, when you help them, you serve Christ himself. Serve Christ himself. Christ comes into your home. So where do I see that? Matthew 25, look there, keep your hand on Hebrews 13 and look at Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The least of these my brothers. He's speaking of the imprisonment and the hunger and the sickness and the lack of clothing, the need of other believers. He's saying, as you serve the least of these my brothers, so you did it to me. The scripture frequently prescribes the command to be hospitable, to help those in need. We're told in 1 Timothy 6 that the rich in the present world are to be generous and ready to share. We continue in Christian love by being generous and hospitable. And we have seen this in so many of you in so many ways. When we make pastoral visits, one of the privileges is to know more about your life as we come into your homes, the homes of the members, and we hear of how you help one another in need. It's not like we sat in anybody's house and they said, let us give you a list of all the many ways we've been generous and charitable to other people. That's not what I'm getting at. 
It's that we sit in people's homes and find out, I was in need and this family in the church helped me. And we didn't know. We had no idea the need was even there. We didn't know that another family in the church helped. But we hear about it and it's humbling and it's encouraging. When the pandemic began, without our requesting it, you all started pouring money into our benevolent fund. And I had employers in this church, men in this church who own businesses, calling me, asking if other folks in this church had lost jobs and needed them. Some of you were taking groceries and gift cards to people who were in need. That's an evidence of the love of God among you. And Sovereign Grace, we encourage you to continue loving one another in this way, to excel still more in that love, excel still more in being generous and ready to share, in being hospitable and loving your brother. Let's look at our final point, love's compassion, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also are in the body. We'll remember those in prison, as if we're in prison with them. This is talking about Christians who are being imprisoned for the faith. This doesn't mean remember the murderers and, and rapists who are in prison, as though you were in prison with them. And I'm not trying to eschew a prison ministry to those folks. That kind of evangelistic ministry is fantastic. I'm glad that some of you are involved in that. But what it's expressly getting after is there are Christians who are imprisoned for the faith. And we're to remember them. We're to remember those who are mistreated and suffering since we are also in the body. These are Christians who are suffering loss and persecution for the faith. Now, John Calvin argues that this saying, in the body, is saying that we're to remember them because we're all members of the one body of Christ. And so you remember them because you're also members of the body in step with the 1 Corinthians 12 We are one body and one one member of the body suffers. The whole body suffers. John Owen argues that this is likely speaking the fact that we're also embodied people who suffer. Not a part of the church body. So we're able to sympathize with those or empathize with those who suffer because we're also embodied people who suffer. Whether Calvin or Owen are correct, I'm not terribly certain the answer is central to understanding the point. The point is... We have compassion for those who suffer because we're men of like passions. Thus, we can suffer with them. And it may also be pressing on the notion that we're in the same mystical body of Christ. I'm not entirely certain. It's just very simple that believers are suffering for the faith and we're to be compassionate. We're to suffer with them. The Hebrew Christians were doing this already. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. You can hear this remembrance language again, but recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We spent time on that text already. I just want to drive you to this The Hebrew Christians were doing this already and they're being reminded to continue in it, to remember it, to not slip away from it, to keep suffering alongside those who are suffering with them. We're to show compassion to other believers as they suffer. That's true when they suffer for the faith. That's true when they suffer in general. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're to love one another by suffering with each other. Now we've seen you come alongside folks who are suffering in a variety of ways. We've seen it in you. 
people who are suffering from mental affliction, we've seen enormous compassion from many of you. People who are abandoned by their spouse, people who are mistreated by others, and we give thanks for the grace of God in you. We give thanks, and we exhort you to keep on remembering to be compassionate. We can remember one another in compassion by praying for one another. We can remember one another in compassion by being present with one another. We can remember one another in compassion by carrying the burdens of others with them, not just leaving them to themselves. In all of this, as those who are in Christ, we are to love his church. We're to continue loving his church. We have to be vigilant toward this end. There's a kind of vigilance that's being called for. It doesn't just happen. You have to be committed to it. Yes, the Spirit has given birth to the love for Christ's church in you, but you want it to be nurtured. You want to continue in it. So the Spirit, if you will pray, the Spirit grows you up into maturity in your love for the church. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the kindness that you have shown us, the love that you have expressed to us in Christ, that we've seen in him, and in the giving of the Spirit to unite us to him through faith. We pray that you would cause us to continue in our love for Christ's church, that we would be generous, hospitable, ready to share, seeking opportunity to help those who are in need. We ask that you would help us to be compassionate, to suffer with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray, to be present with them, to help them as they have need. Father, we pray that we would understand, know in some small way as our creaturely capacity allows, the love of Christ, that your Spirit would help us to be constantly remembering your love for us and your Son his love for us in laying down of his life, and that we would love our brothers. We pray this, ask that you would do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.